0: Jonah is an interesting book because uh, there are most skeptics of Scripture will say that it's an allegory. They'll say it's a story to tell us something, like Aesop's fables, or something like that, where it's it's not something that actually happened. It's just to teach a lesson. But I would argue that because Jesus himself actually quotes and tells us the purpose of the story of Jonah. He says, "Just as Jonah spent." three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so also the Son of Man will be dead and buried for three days and rise again. So he points out that the point, the purpose of this story is actually pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just a story. This is something that physically happened. And whether you wrestle with that or not, I think it would be easy to because it's, it's a well-known story. A man was swallowed by a large fish, and whatever kind you think it was, this man was swallowed and survived for three days. So it's, it's an interesting concept. And so when we look at this story, realize it's a historical thing that took place, that the people that Jonah was called to preach to were real people, and that the people that he went on the boat with and all the other people involved were real. And Jonah himself became a sign to the Ninevites, a sign of God's judgment, a sign of God's uh, speaking to humanity. Um, But also, I want to point out that this is not somebody that was never spoken of in any, any other scriptures. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, he's actually mentioned as a prophet of God. 2 Kings 14 verse 24 says this. Well, I'll start in verse 23. It says, "...in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of... Sorry, this is not the right... It can't be the right scripture. Wait, let's just keep reading and see what happens. Yeah. Hmm oh, there it is. Sorry, it was verse 25. So he says, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. So he was from Gath Heifer, and he was a prophet, and we don't have all of his prophecies written down, but apparently he had prophesied to this nation at the time that God was going to restore all the land that they had lost to them. So you could see that he'd be a pretty popular prophet. He was a Jewish man. He had heard the word of the Lord, and he was able to give them something that they wanted to hear. Imagine if all your property had been taken from you, and and you didn't know if you were ever gonna get it back. Something that was a historical, like your family owned it for generation to generation to generation. Another country comes in and steals it, takes it over as their own, kicks you out, and then you don't know if you're ever gonna see it again. This is a family heirloom. And then this prophet comes along and says, hey, don't worry, God's gonna restore this whole piece of ground to you. You'd be pretty excited. So this is a popular prophet to the Jews. But in the book of Jonah, he's not called to prophesy to the Jews. He's called to prophesy to the Gentile nation of Nineveh. And Nineveh is a nation of Syria. It was the capital of Syria. And Syria was actually well known for their cruelty and their violence towards their enemies. Uh, one commentary that I read said that they were known for taking fish hooks putting them in the jaw or the lips of their enemies and dragging them away as captives. They would put a big fish hook in your lip and drag you by it all the way back to where they were going to take you. Another account I read said that they would actually skin their enemies alive and then use their skins as couch cushions. They would cover their couches, not in cow, not in cloth, but in human skin. So these are brutal ridiculously brutal people. So imagine, if you will, many of you probably know the story of Jonah. God says, I want you to go and speak to these people. I want you to go and tell them that judgment is imminent. Uh, who's, who's your Ninevites? You know, that's what I would ask. I wrote that question down. Who are the Ninevites that are in your life that God has shared the love of his son with you? He's provided a way for you to be saved Who's your Ninevites? You're called to, you're blessed to be a blessing. The nation of Israel was no different. Uh, Who's your Ninevites? Is it the Taliban? Is it ISIS? You know, because essentially that's who it is to them. It's ISIS. It's not like somebody that, you know, a neighbor that you just barely dislike because one time they borrowed your tool and never brought it back. We're talking about somebody that killed your family. Who's your Ninevites? Or maybe your nativites aren't that. They're somebody internally, like Republicans versus Democrats, or Libertarian, or whatever your, your thing is. You can't stand them. Um, your conservative or liberal friends or neighbors. So before we get to that, let's, let's start in our passage here in Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So here's the, here's the word from the Lord, and he's a prophet, so he has to be good at listening and responding. God is always speaking to us. Do you know that? You may not feel like it, but he always is. He's speaking to us. He's telling us things that pertain to way, how we're supposed to walk, he told Jonah, I want you to arise. I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Who else in scripture has God said, arise and go? Abraham's one in Genesis. He says, I want you to arise and I want you to go to a nation, a place that I will show you. Uh, Later on in Abraham's life, God says, I want you to arise and take your son, your only son, And I want you to take him to a mountain I will show you and make a sacrifice. He called him to sacrifice his son. And for three full days, he walked towards this mountain, not knowing what was going to happen. And Hebrews actually says that when he gets to the mountain, he, well, actually Genesis says he he goes up the mountain, he's got the wood for the sacrifice, he's got the flame to take up there, he's got um, everything that he needs to make an offering, except he doesn't take a lamb or a ram. So he gets up there, and on the way up there, his son, knowing what a sacrifice looks like, because he, you know, his dad's taken him to church his whole life, and he says, Dad, where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And his dad doesn't say, well, you're it. He says, the Lord himself will provide himself a sacrifice. He'll provide a sacrifice when we get up there. Now, Hebrews says that Abraham knew that he had to sacrifice his son as a living sacrifice sacrifice up there on the altar that he was going to have to kill him. He had the knife in his hand. But what it also says is that he believed that God's promise to give him descendants, as many as the sand on the seashore, was a promise he could bank on. And so even if he had to kill his son, he knew that what would happen is God was able to raise him from the dead. He believed, therefore he did. And what we find out from Jonah here is that he's been called, and it says there, to go to Nineveh and cry out against it, for their wickedness has been noticed by the Lord. Their wickedness has come up before me. God is aware of wickedness. Do you know that? Sometimes it doesn't seem like it because he doesn't snuff it out right away. You know, we have people that have said things about us, we have people that have done things to us, we have nations that are brutally massacring innocent people. That's why we have so many immigrants trying to flee countries. So the question is, when is God going to do something? Well, he is aware of it. It's not because he's turned a blind eye to it. He says, I want you to go to the great city and cry out against it because I am aware of their wickedness. Verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So God gives a command. He gives instruction. Jonah is a blessed man. He can hear the voice of the Lord. He knows exactly what he's called to. But what is his response? His response is much like my one-year-old right now. Judah, come here. What does he do? He grabs what he has, what he's not supposed to have. He turns the other direction and goes there. And that's what Jonah did. He essentially, instead of going to where he was told to go, which was Nineveh, which is about two miles north of Nazareth, instead of going there, he turns the exact opposite direction. He was going to have to go about, I can't remember how many miles it is, but the place he was going to, Charshish, was in Spain, so he has to get on a ship and go all the way to Spain, which is about 5,000 miles away. Or Wait, it's like 2,500. It's a lot in the wrong direction. It's not anywhere close to where he's supposed to go. But notice this. He decides to disobey the Lord, knowing full and well what the Lord's will is. And it says there an interesting phrase. Number one, he went down to Joppa. Now this is a geographic term. And then it says, he found a ship going to Tarshish, which just so happened to be there and ready to go. Perfect. You know, you, you could even see that he might think, hey, everything's going my way. I must be walking in the will of the Lord. You know, have you ever done that? Like, how do I know if this is the Lord's will or not? Well, let's see if the circumstances line up. And if they do, then it must be God's will. And I would say to you, that is walking by sight and not by faith. I've, I've been guilty of this. Just because the circumstances work out and they're convenient does not mean that you are walking in the will of the Lord. In this case, he was walking directly in rebellion to God and Satan gave him everything he needed to go the wrong way. But notice this. It says, he went down to Joppa and he went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord The psalmist wrote about this. Where can a man go to flee the presence of the Lord? It's a simple answer. Nowhere. You can't flee the presence of the Lord. He created all things. In him, all things consist. And he holds them all together by the word of his power. That's Colossians chapter 1. So where can I go to flee the presence of the Lord? I can't. But in his foolishness, Jonah arose. And then every step of the way, going away from the Lord, he went down. Let me tell you that anytime you disobey a direct command of God, you are going down. You're humbling yourself and you don't even realize it, but you're doing it the wrong way. Um, So verse four, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners that were on the ship were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. Let me submit to you that in Jonah's day, there were no atheists. None of them were atheists. Every man had his own God, and in that day, gods were regional. And so if your God was the God of the hills, you'd live in the hills. If your God was the God of the plains, they'd live in the plains. If your God was the God of the sea, you'd live on the sea and you would worship that God when you were there. And when you went to another region, you would worship that God. That's the way they looked at it. But notice this, it says, the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and through the cargo that was in the ship, excuse me, in the ship, into the sea to lighten the load. So this is a cargo ship. Their livelihood is delivering everything that's on the ship to the destination. That's the only way they get paid. Their first response is to cry out to their God. Their second response is to dump all the junk, to get rid of the weight that kept them from getting to their destination. If they lower the amount of weight, they can sit higher in the sea, and then their boat won't be tossed to and fro and broken as easily under load, it would take more of a beating. And so, you know what? They didn't care about their paycheck no more because their life was in danger. And so it says there, they lightened the load, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was asleep. So the one guy on the ship that knows the God that can stop the storm, he's not even praying. And these guys that don't know the Lord, but are worshiping these false gods, they're praying. They're doing things to get out of their circumstances, and Jonah is asleep. Not only has he gone down to this place, Joppa, not only has he gone down into the ship, but now he's in the lowest place he's ever been so far. He's asleep when he could be praying. So the captain came to him and said to him, "'What do you mean, sleeper? What are you doing?' What's your problem? We're all out here perishing. He says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Interestingly enough, there was a story in Mark, somewhere around chapter 8 to 10, where Jesus took his disciples and they got on a small boat. And they went across, we call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's just a lake that's about 12 miles wide and they get on this boat, and in the middle of the night, a storm catches up, and in the end of the boat is Jesus, and he's asleep because he's worn out. He's been ministering all day. These guys are trying to get across the, the Sea of Galilee, and as they get across the Sea of Galilee, a similar storm comes through. Gale winds, huge you know, waves, and these guys, they're just freaking out, and so they go, Jesus! what's going on? Don't you care that we're perishing? Because they've seen the things that he can do. And Jesus wakes up and he doesn't do what I would do when someone wakes me up like that. He doesn't get aggravated. And he says, peace, be still. But he doesn't say it to the men. He says it to the sea. And what does the sea do? It becomes completely calm. So in the same way, here's this storm. Here's this opportunity to show the power of God, not the power of man. And Jonah is sleeping. And when he wakes up, (laughs) the captain's angry at him. And he says, what do you mean by sleeping? Call on your God, just like we are. And perhaps he will consider us so that we may not perish. Notice that Jonah's disobedience to the Lord... When he goes to the ship and he rides in it, he puts everyone in danger in that ship. There's the people that don't know God, and I want to say that if God has given you influence over any human being in any position, if you disobey simple commandments of the Lord, you're endangering everyone that's on the boat with you. Your family, your friends, your coworkers—you endanger people by your disobedience. Many people I've talked to, when when I've talked to them about specific things, and they know that they're in sin, and I say, don't you know that this harms other people? And they say, hey, my sin only affects me. It doesn't affect those around me. And let me tell you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. People are following you, and people are going where you're going. They're doing what you're doing. They're seeing the things that you do. They know that you call yourself a Christian, and so that gives them at least in some way, some sort of like, well, he does it or she does it. Why not? And that includes our children. They don't just pick up on the things that, that we know. Are, are You know, obviously, when you're a parent, you've got certain things you want to instill in your kids, right? I mean, we all do. But what I have found with my young children that are four and one is that they don't pick up on the stuff that I say They pick up on the stuff that I do. They love the things that I actually do, not just the stuff that I talk about. And so um, Jonah has influence here. So he says, they came, so verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah you can see that the hand of the Lord is involved in this dice throw or whatever they did. They would cast lots to figure things out. Now to us, that seems a little bit foolish because we have studied statistics and we know all the, you know, the odds and everything that goes along with it, but the lots are cast and it comes to Jonah. So you can see that the Lord was trying to give them some insight. Verse eight, then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're trying to figure out, you know, who, who is the one causing this curse in their minds. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, which is obviously not true, by the way, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now in his mind, he feared the Lord, but in his actions, he denied the Lord. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, he's not a local God. He's God over everything. So he's telling them something that they've never heard of before. So then verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, why have you done this? Like, what is your problem? You know, like why? And and it says there, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. See, I first read that first verse there where it says they were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, why have you done this? And I'm like, well, done what? And then it goes on to say he had already told them that he was fleeing from the Lord. So they can see clearly. Sometimes you can see other people's disobedience more clearly than you can your own. Did you know that? Like sometimes it's more obvious from the outside perspective when someone else is obviously disobeying the Lord. And I I would say to you, I would submit to you that that's why we need the body of Christ. I I can hear from the Lord for myself, but sometimes I'm not listening very well. Sometimes I don't see things clearly and I need somebody in my life to hold me accountable and go, hey, I know you think this is the will of the Lord, but you might, and you got to do this with kick gloves, like you don't want to go in there wailing on them. But it's one of those things where we need folks that are also listening to lord who are praying for us that are willing to say hey i love our friendship and i'm risking it here but i just want to make sure like you're in check you know we do this in other areas of our lives all the time if you're playing a sport with somebody and you're practicing and the coach keeps telling you to do something and change your attitude or whatever you're sometimes it's, it's hard, especially, you know, in middle school and high school, you're like, yeah, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking. He doesn't know my deal. I know more stuff than he does. But if one of your, your fellow players comes along and says, Hey, I know you don't like the coach. And I know you don't, you're not really listening to him right now, but he's telling you something you need to hear. And you're going to be a way better basketball player. If you'll take that advice, man, it's, it's encouraging. It's not always encouraging, but it's something where it's like, you got two people telling you the same thing okay, maybe I need to listen a little bit more. These men don't even know the Lord and they're calling him out. He says, so then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? If it's your fault, then what can we do to calm the sea? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. This thing is still ramping up while they're having this discussion and trying to figure this out. Verse 12 says, "And, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Verse 13, look at their response. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. They were not willing to just go, oh, okay, and toss him out. You know, if this God is mad at this man for fleeing his presence, he's probably going to be mad at us for throwing his servant into the sea. Like, that's murder. I'm pretty sure their God's against that. You know, maybe they had a little cultural insight. They knew what this God was about. And so, verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. Verse 14, therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord. Look at this. Before we ever get a word from Jonah about prayer, these men stopped praying to their God's, and they start praying to the Lord. Now notice in your Bibles, at least in mine, it doesn't say just the Lord L, you know, capital L, little o, little r, little d. It says Lord all capitals. The the first one's taller than the others, but they're all in capitals. Well, what that means is he's not just talking about a uh, someone that's your master like a lord. They they he's they're not just talking about some god or some some you know, authority. What he's saying there, what these men are praying, we pray, O oh Lord. That's what our version of the Bible has for the, the tetragrammaton, which is just a fancy word for Yahweh. God has a name, and it was a name that was their covenant name for God. It wasn't just God, little g, it was God, big g. And that word was, over time, they took the vowel sounds out of it, because if you wrote or said the name of God, they would feel like they were too unholy to say it. So they stopped saying the whole name and they started saying this little abbreviation of it, which was YHVH, which is the shortened version of what we believe is either Yahweh or Jehovah. My point is that these, these men aren't just saying, hey God, if you're up there, they're saying Hebrew God. They're saying specifically God of Jonah, God of the Hebrews, Israelites God. They're saying, Please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So they made a sacrifice to the Lord. They prayed to him. They're getting ready to throw Jonah in at his instruction, but before they do it, they're praying for forgiveness because they feel like they're going to do him wrong. So there seems to be a heart change in these men. And so it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." So that's the end of our passage today. So I I want to draw a couple of things out. First of all, we already went over the fact that when we are disobedient, we take others with us and we put them in harm's way. And I think that's an important note. But I also want to point out the grace of God to you. Because in this passage, something that is a little uncomfortable for us, but something that we need to know, and that hopefully it unlocks something in you that you've never thought about before is that God is bigger than our disobedience. God is bigger than your disobedience. He will actually work out good things in the midst of you denying to do what he told you to do. Now, it's hard to tell people that because what we get is, oh, so I can do anything I want, and then God's still good with it. Yes, he can use it. No, he's not still good with it, but his grace covers that. It's a a scary truth to tell people that because it's like giving a 16-year-old a $60,000 pickup truck that's been jacked up three feet and has huge tires and has the biggest engine you can get and saying, go ahead. Because what are they going to do? They're going to do what Willie from Duck Dynasty's son did and flip the thing and probably kill somebody. That's how dangerous it is. With power comes great responsibility. But in the grace of God, the important, the grace note, the important piece of this is that we don't have to stress out about every little thing. We have to find out what God wants us to do to try to obey him to our best ability and know that when we fail, his grace can cover that and he'll still use it. I hope that's encouraging to you as we get ready to go into a new year, because I don't know about you guys, but I spend 99% thinking about all the things I've failed at And I spend 1% of my time going, hey, I did good at this. And what God wants to show us is that uh, he realizes he's giving us the keys to that huge four-wheel drive pickup truck. And he realizes we have the potential to look at our phone for five minutes instead of driving and wreck that thing. And he's not even afraid of it. God's not afraid to give us the opportunity to fail. Fail, I looked it up, it's spelled F-A-I-L. And I have this thing at work because there's not a whole lot of grace when we mess up sometimes. And I put on there, first attempt in learning. If you want to learn to follow the Lord, you're going to fail. Just be okay with that. God's not afraid of it. But don't let it lock you up in the paralysis of analysis and not let you take the first step. Take the first step, do it to your best ability, and look for the opportunity to take another step. And God wants to direct your path, but you have to let him. So the whole point of Jonah, and we're going to get more into the whole point, is God's gracious extension of His mercy to other nations. what we 're going to find out is that Jonah gave a word to the excuse me, the Lord gave a word to Jonah to give to this people that Jonah didn't like. but what we're going to find out is that God uses people that are rebellious. God uses people that deny him. Uh, But what he wants to do is, through this book, I believe, help show us that we all have some Jonah in us. God's told us to do specific things, and we said, you know, I'll do it later. Don't do it later. Delayed obedience is disobedience, and the Lord will chasten you because he loves you to turn you around. We're going to see that next week. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your